Hi, everyone. Um, so, I, w there's about 10 of us, so six, three, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, could we come up a wee bit closer? Is that all right? Um, we may have some late arrivals. I'm going to grab it. Chair, so I'm using the mic because it's been recorded. Did the guy come in and press the record button or whatever he does? So, so, um, so I'm using the mic because uh, all these conversations have to be recorded. Uh, so, in a court of law, you know, there's uh, proof of what we said. Okay, uh, can I talk over that public address? Oh no, it's quite loud. <laughs> Start talking. Um, okay, so nice to see you all. Thanks for coming. Um, I, uh, I suppose what I'm doing here is um, an amalgam of a couple of different talks uh, that I've given over the years, or over maybe even the last couple of years. Um, and uh, it is, um, I think on the, on the um, what is it, do we have it up there? No, on the um, program it says, Youth, the Church, and Brexit, or something like that. So let me give a, probably what I really am going to talk about, which is, I suppose it touches on Brexit. Maybe we shouldn't have used Brexit in the title. That's not exactly a crowd drawer, you know. Um, so we're going to talk about Brexit and what went into that and what some of the thematic kind of consequences of it in terms of uh, identity, borders, and belonging. Um, so there was a book written, um, so yeah, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the Book of Ruth, um, and kind of look at what the Book of Ruth in the Bible might say to the questions about identity, and who we are, and borders, and where we, where we go, and um, so we're going we're gonna to look at some of that stuff. There was a book written um, three, four, five years ago by two people, Padre Gotuma and Glenn Jordan. Glenn tragically passed away. Um, about two years ago, is it two or three years ago? Three years ago. Um, and it was a book called Borders and Belonging. Uh, and it looked at the, the book of Ruth and kind of then tried to unpack what we could draw from the book of Ruth in relation to the question that we have here in Ireland, in the north of Ireland, in Northern Ireland, around identity and who we are. Are we British? Are we Irish? Uh, whatever. Okay, so I'm going to be touching on that, and I th suppose through it, I will then talk about or ask the question: What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus, as the church today, um, and what could it mean in future generations? And you know, okay. So maybe I'll start with trying. I'm going to read. This is a little bit boring to do in a little small group, but if you can hang with me. Um, this is a talk I've given a couple of times, and I'm, I'm going to read maybe the introduction and then skip ahead to the Ruth stuff, if that's okay. So it's not very conversational, but if we could start that way, and then we can do a bit of Q&A, a bit of conversation towards the end. And Dave is very kindly here to also give his... He's very good on Ruth, and Dave is my friend who's from England originally, but lived here for 30-odd years via um, eight years in India. Uh, and so questions of living in post-colonial Ireland, post-colonial India, identity, who we are, you know, those are questions that I suppose you've encountered in your life too. So it'd be good to hear your reflections, ruminations, so to speak. So this was a talk I gave, and the, the conference was called Life Beyond Borders. So this was my intro bit. 
2012 to 2022 was a decade of anniversaries in Ireland, marking events and lost lives in places from Dublin and Belfast to the fields of the Somme in France. This decade started with the Ulster Covenant in 1912, where just shy of half a million men and women signed a solemn covenant pledging to use all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Ireland. That decade, 1912 to 22-23, continued with the Easter Rising where the ancient myth of a blood sacrifice resurfaced. The plotters of the Rising were put against a wall and faced a British firing squad. Two months later, on the 1st of July, 1916, 20,000 British soldiers were killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. One-tenth of those fatalities were Irish, many from Belfast, many from places like the Shankill Road. If you still drive up the Shankill, you'll see murals to it. In 1918, further on in that decade, a guerrilla war was launched by the IRA, which culminated in peace agreement, which included the partition of Ireland in 1921. The northernmost Protestant six counties, we know this, was partitioned. I think I gave this talk to a bunch of English people, so I was needing to educate them a wee bit, so sorry. Um, the northernmost Protestant six counties were partitioned to become the new political state of Northern Ireland. This partition then led to a bloody civil war among Irish Republicans. So much blood, so much mythology. For Irish Protestants and Catholics, the events of Easter 16 and the Battle of the Somme were their blood sacrifice, which guaranteed the righteousness of their political ideals and was the sacrifice ensuring their claim to their land. Nothing could be further from the meaning of the cross than to use it as a narrative to glorify death, rivalry, and killing in the service of one's own national identity. On the cross, I believe we can say Jesus put death on display in order to subvert it with love, forgiveness, and an empty tomb. The events of 1912 to 23 were a litany of heartbreaking misappropriations of the language of sacrifice in the service of raw hatred and fear of those not like us. So I want to share briefly my encounter with the Irish border uh, before talking a bit about Ruth. I'm a New Zealander who moved here to Northern Ireland in 1984 when I was nine years old. I've lived here ever since. So that's coming up to 40 years. 40 years since I left New Zealand, lived in England for a year, and then moved here in 84. Years ago, I heard a Christian leader describe a prayer time he'd been part of for Ireland. In this time of prayer, this leader saw the border in Ireland as a wound an infected wound that needed to be treated. I found that imagery compelling, and it resulted in me being part of a decade of pilgrimages of reconciliation along the border in Ireland. That was when I was working for YWAM. I worked for Youth with a Mission for 20, 25 years, slash my lifetime. Um, our route on, the, on this border walk, this pilgrimage of prayer reconciliation, zigzags, zigzagged back and forth across the border like a wound being sewn together. Of course, I don't believe our footsteps were magical. We couldn't heal ancient wounds by walking, but we were able to make a public display every year for 200 miles of reconciliation. We were also able to encounter a deeper level of empathy. In the first year of our walk, we entered the border-straddling village of Cross Maglen, made infamous by the number of shootings there during the Troubles, also made famous by being the place where Dave uh, proposed, uh, started going out with his, his now wife uh, in 1998, summer of 98. This, that should be a song, rock song, Dave, summer of 98. 
bought your first real six string in Cross McGlynn. Um, a friend of mine uh, was a youth and community worker in a village near Cross McGlynn. He said to me, on our, this is our first ever walk, Johnny, are your feet sore? sore. I, of course they are, I, I replied. Myself and my companions have just walked 30 miles in two days. Good, he said. I was praying that they'd be sore. That's always kind of weird when people say that kind of stuff. Like, who says that? I, like, I know you're a bit, he's a bit of an eccentric dude. I know you're eccentric, but why would you say, you know, we've just walked all the way from Ross Trevor, halfway across County Down into South Armagh. He said, I was praying that they'd be sore. Now your feet can tell you something of the, of the pain felt by people all along this border. He had spent his life working in, border, in the border areas. Um, Frederick Douglass said, I'm taking this a wee bit out of context, but it's in the context of pilgrimage and walking. He said, praying for freedom never did me any good till I started praying with my feet. It was Abraham Heschel. Uh, so if you ever see the pictures of Martin Luther King walking across the bridge at Selma, Alabama, there's a big guy, white guy with a big beard. That's Abraham Heschel walking with him. Abraham Heschel said after walking with Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, the march was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips, and walking is not kneeling. And yet <clears throat> our legs uttered songs even without words. Our march was worship. Our, I felt my legs were praying. I think that's beautiful words. Um, let me see if I can skip ahead here. Um, so I, I guess I'm kind of, I touched on a decade of anniversaries, 1912 to 23, which kind of created the framework for the context of the island we live in today. Talking about a little bit of a project I've been involved in that's still going on. Why were you on? You, I don't know if you were part of the border walk. They walk 200 miles to this day every June-ish. Um, uh, along the border, it's a very beautiful place. Um, and then, so coming to um, back to some of these issues of identity and events of 100 years ago. Um, when Edward Carson, the leader of the Unionist people on Ireland in 1912, left Belfast after signing the Ulster Covenant, a vast crowd lined Belfast Loch and sung Rule, Brit Rule Britannia and God Save the King. And when Carson went ashore at Liverpool next morning, he was greeted by a 150,000 strong crowd with the hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, and it conducted him in procession. The Ulster Covenant he had signed said, we humbly relying on the God whom our fathers in days of stress, blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, I'm not going to read the whole covenant, but it's a very, it's almost religious, very religious, um, you know, humbly relying on God to protect our Britishness. Um, they didn't say that, but essentially that was the meaning. And we will use any means necessary um, to, to make sure that home rule wouldn't be granted. Um, I suppose for, for you guys and for the masses of people that will be listening to this recording, um, I'll maybe use a quote that I, I was really the inspiration for uh, a documentary and a podcast series I made called Guardians of the Flame. Um, and it came from a book called The Dignity of Difference by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's, who's no longer with us. He passed away a couple of years ago, the former chief rabbi of the Commonwealth. And, and he said, after the Enlightenment, it was believed that religion would become mute, marginal, and mild. It did not. Religion is fire, 
And like fire, it warms, but it also burns. And we are the guardians of the flame. Um, we don't have to be geniuses to realize that religious rhetoric can be very easily tied to questions of national liberation, national identity, um, national self-defense, national, national whatever, nationalism. Um, it's very easy to begin to put God on our side. I, I quoted two people yesterday. One is Anne Lamott who said, you know, um, you've created God in your own image when he, he hates all the same people you do. Um, and, uh, and which essentially, I, I guess I'm being a, it's a wee bit harsh maybe to say that, but I would say 120 years ago, many of the Protestants who were signing the Ulster Covenant believed that God hated all the people they did, you know? Ultimately, if he didn't hate them, they cer he certainly wanted them to be second. He didn't want them to be the dominant political force in the country they were living in. They wanted to be the political force. And so if we weren't going to be ruled by Westminster, then you're going to have to carve off the most Protestant six counties, Protestant nation for Protestant people. Um, and I would say they were somehow dabbling in the sin of idolatry, which is the number one sin of the Bible. Um, my other friend, my friend David Kidd says, you, um, when, uh, uh, you, uh, what is it, what does he say? Um, when God hates, when, when your enemy becomes God's enemy, you know you're worshiping an idol. And, um, and I think, I think places where there has been ethnic conflict that's often got religion associated to it, whether you were talking about Bosnia, where you have kind of Serbian Orthodox, um, Bosnian Muslims, Croatian Catholics, this colliding of three great religions, but also religions that connect to different ethnic groups. Um, it's very easy to see that that religious identity has become an idol for all the people. Um, and it's, and once, you're, once your God is kind of like on your political side, it's very hard to compromise because why would we want to compromise the truth of God you know um, let me run quickly into Ruth where I'm kind of this is probably I might have uh, bitten off more than I can chew with my rather ambitious um, title um, Padraig, my friend Padraig Tuma, who wrote the book uh, Borders and Belonging described Ruth as a widowed border crosser a foreigner on land not her own a character of virtue whose national belonging was viewed before her personhood. Um, in the theater of Ruth, a nation is asked to consider itself by its recognition of the power of kindness, not its repetition of stereotype. The book of Ruth demands that people in the here and now speak to each other rather than about each other. Um, what we can learn, uh, there's much we can learn. I'm not going to go over the book of Ruth, read it afterwards if you want. Ruth is a Moabite. So uh, if you do a little bit of digging in the Bible, you will find that the children of Israel, people of the nation of Israel, had a number of enemies. We probably all know the, um, the, the Philistines, the big ones. Um, there were also, uh, you know, of course, um, in Egypt for, for 40 years. No, for how many years? Uh, 400 years. 400 years? Sorry, I'm getting mixed up with my, oh, that's rain. Look at that, horrible. Um, so they were, so Egyptians were their enemy, lots of enemies. Um, and actually, even Egyptians who had enslaved them for, oh, we're going to get loads of people now, welcome, now you come to us after the rain, you know. Um, so the Egyptians, um, 
you know, it enslaved them for 400 years. Uh, actually, if an Egyptian wanted to become a member of the House of Israel, um, they were welcome to. Um, uh, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that uh, an Egyptian um, uh, could be, con after three generations of the children, um, could be considered one of the people of God. So if an Egyptian says, I want to be part of the people of God, their grandchildren could join, basically, right? Which is pretty, it's like, right, you enslaved us for 400 years, but we'll let you join us if you give us three generations, you know? But the Moabites, however, were a different thing. Um, according to Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4. Wow, that's rain if you're listening to this. Um, the Moabites should never ever be admitted to the people of God. Not even if over 10 generations they prove themselves faithful. The, cl the clear reason given is because when the Israelites were hungry and thirsty, the Moabites did not meet that need with bread and water. So Deuteronomy 23 unequivocally says, no Moabite can ever be part of us. They are utterly banned. You know, they're utterly, uh, you know, they're outcast. Um, Hebrews 25 is, relays the story of Moabite women who will lead Hebrew men astray. And it's, a, it's a, an old uh, trope um, uh, buried in Numbers 25 where a story is told of uh, Moabite women who lead poor, innocent Israelite men astray. The account tells that ultimately 24,000 people died in a plague that afflicted the people because of the Lord's anger at their sin with these women. The text is unambiguous and goes on to say that the Moabite women with whom the men had had illicit sex also enticed these men into worshipping foreign gods. If fleeing Bethlehem in a famine to go to Moab was one foolish act, it is compounded by the second, marrowing these boys to Moabite women can only end in heartbreak. So the book of Ruth is about a Hebrew woman, Naomi, who leaves in a famine and goes to Moab. Of all places, don't go to Moab. Why? Because they're horrible. Like, they're obviously forbidden in the, in the law. They're outcasts. They're the worst of worst of people. They're even worse than the Egyptians who enslaved us for four centuries. Um, and whatever you do, if you've got a son, don't let them marry a Moabite woman because they're terrible, according to Numbers 25. So what does the book of Ruth tell us? Well, Naomi goes to Moab, and she's got a couple of sons, and who do they marry? Moabite women. Uh-oh, you're like, big no-no, like they're doing the wrong thing. And then what happens in the book of Ruth? Uh, is, it, is that what happens? So Ruth is this Moabite woman, and is, does she lead them astray? Well, no, the most famous words uh, that she said, uh, that are often told at weddings, kind of slightly out of context, uh, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go, you know. Um, she's utterly faithful to her mother-in-law. She could have left. Naomi's like, go away, go, go home, find yourself some other man. And she goes, no, I'm going to stay with you because you're a widow. You're on your own. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you. Ruth embodies the perfect faithfulness. And yet she's a Moabite. According to Deuteronomy, they could never be allowed into the people of Israel. They then go back, of course, to, to Israel, and there's a story, and it's a funny story of quirky kind of customs in those days, but essentially uh, Ruth ends up meeting Boaz, and, and they get married, and, and they all live happily ever after. And then 
um, their grandson, isn't it? Grandson is, is David or Jesse? Yeah. Um, and, and so in the lineage of Jesus, we have this Moabite woman. The Moabites who, who, you know, are, according to some Hebrew traditions, the most despised people that they could ever meet. So Ruth is a fascinating story about others, stereotypes. We live in a society where, whether we like it or not, we, in, in fact, almost every human being lives in some kind of national context where we face stereotypes. Those people are all like this. Those people are like this. Usually when you make a stereotype, it's because you don't know the person very well. Why wouldn't we know someone in Northern Ireland? Why, any reason why we wouldn't happen to know someone from another? Well, we all go to different schools. <laughs> Unless you go to, my boys go to an integrated school. But, you know, we all go to different schools, and we kind of largely, depending on where you live, live in separate places. We have different kind of peoples, and we don't know each other. The most divided time in our, in our week is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, when we all go to our different churches, you know? And, um, and we're a divided people who often don't know each other. And therefore, in that ignorance, stereotyping can emerge, and that can lead to dehumanization and demonization. And so we can very easily find ourselves saying sim similar things, like the Moabites are terrible. Well, we can replace the word Moabite by the Muslims, the Catholics, the Protestants, the the whatever, the immigrants, you know, those kind of stereotypes emerge out of, um, out of ignorance. The Book of Ruth is a beautiful picture um, that, and, uh, of the turning on its head of, uh, of, of the law. And it's turned on the head by love. Interestingly enough, let me just finish with this. Now, maybe I'll let you, Dave, um, just give your ruminations and we'll finish with a quick... Um, the Hebrew um, feast every year, um, uh, um, let me just get the, of Shavuot. Um, Ruth is, is told, uh, during this feast of Shavuot, uh, every year where the narrative about the giving of the Ten Commandments is read. And there's the fiery mountain and, and Moses is receiving this law. And whenever that, in that feast, the ten, giving of the Ten Commandments story is read, there's another story read alongside it. And it's a story of Ruth, a story that, that helps you to understand how you should interpret the law. Ruth is a story about the law being turned upside down because she is the most marginalized. She, uh, her, um, she is a foreigner coming to Israel. She's a, a widow. She's on her own. And in the story of Ruth, the law is reinterpreted by this marginalized person. And so every year, Jewish people in this feast read the law, and then they read the story of a marginalized woman who reinterprets the law. And so in many ways, as Christians, we talk about how Jesus is the hermeneutic lens through which we can understand Scripture. So if you want to try and understand what the Bible says, it's kind of hard. Sometimes it says things like, you know, don't eat pork, and then it says do, and then, you know, all these kind of laws. Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He becomes the hermeneutic lens. If it's okay for Jesus, it's okay for us, you know? Jesus, you know, the Pharisees said, don't eat on the Sabbath, don't heal, don't do all this stuff. Jesus goes, ah, you're misunderstanding it. You can do this. And so as Christians today, we can look at the life of Jesus as our way to, un to discover the Old Testament, right? R for Jewish people, Ruth is that kind of Jesus hermeneutic, if you like. Ruth is the hermeneutic lens of God's uh, um, pre... Uh, 
absolute um, favor for those who are most dispossessed and most marginalized. Um, and so for us in Ireland today, we, I believe, have to um, understand that God loves the marginalized and God wants us to be border crossers and to transcend borders that kind of define in and out Protestant, Catholic, uh, whatever, in, including the minority communities that are moving in here, Muslims, etc. We must transcend those borders. We must embody, incarnate the life of Christ in all of those spaces, identifying with the most marginalized, not coming in as these arbiters of righteousness. There's a whole lot more I could say, and I'm sorry for just dumping a whole like, load of stuff. Dave, why don't you just come up and give us a couple of reflections, because I always like, you've got to use the microphone, I always like the way you reflect on Ruth, and, um, and um, can, here, you sit where I'm sitting. Just a few minutes and then we'll... Thank you. Anyone like fruit pasta? Uh, there's a couple of reflections on, on Ruth. Um, one thing about the book of Ruth is the names of everybody is really important. It's a very highly stylized book. And um, so Ruth, I like what you were saying there about Ruth being an archetype for our faithful savior. Uh, Ruth means friend. And uh, Naomi means sweetness. Um, and Naomi's sweetness, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitterness. And then, um, and then Orpah, who's Ruth's sister-in-law, who's the one who turns away and goes in search of her own life in Moab and doesn't stay. Orpah means the back of the neck, that's what it means. And... Uh, it strikes me when, when you've got Ruth, everyone needs a friend, you know, and, and the friend is the one who sticks closer than a brother. And it says at the end of uh, Ruth, it says, you know, you're, that all the women of the village, as Naomi juggles her grandson on her, you know, on her lap, it says, you know, Ruth is better than seven sons. You know, she's, she's you know, gosh, you know, because she's a woman, you know, so, yeah. But she's better than seven boys even. You know, she's, she's, she's been a tremendous blessing to you, uh, Naomi, and turned your, your bitterness back to sweetness. Um, and uh, looking at the context here in Northern Ireland, I recently, uh, I've been working a little bit with Lash. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Lash community, but uh, set up by Jean Vanier. Um, and it's based around radical inclusivity, really, between... Um, able-bodied, you know, mentally normal people, and then people who struggle with educational difficulties, learning difficulties, uh, physical disability. And everyone basically, that the idea is inclusion, right, in that we don't live together as carers and recipients of care. Everyone lives together as friends, and, and, and we help each other. We, everyone brings something to the table. You know, I might be able to carry more than you, but we, we all get there in the end, and we all need each other. And I've got some part-time, I've taken some part-time hours with the Lash community. And I was telling Kerry, Kerry's my sister-in-law, um, the other day that I was doing the dishes with Connor. And uh, he has Down syndrome. And uh, we were talking about music and our favorite song. His favorite song is When You Wish Upon a Star. And so we sang When You Wish Upon a Star as we did the dishes. And at the end of it, 
I got a round of applause from Connor, and then I got a hug. <laughs> and for a weary, jaded soul like me, <laughs> uh, a round of applause for my singing When You Wish Upon a Star and a Hug was very profoundly beautiful and was very healing and was very lovely. And it just struck me in the context of division and Brexit, you know, we're talking about all these different things. Um, but that idea of radical inclusivity, that as, as you open up and as you invite in, Boaz, has, Boaz means strength is in him, is what Boaz means, strength. So as Boaz opens up to Ruth, to the foreigner, to the, the other, and it's all kind of scandalous the way it all happens, but you don't want to go into the Hebrew on that one too much, but it's all a bit dodgy. Um, but, it, but out of love and compassion, he does the right thing. And he does the right thing, and, it, and, it, and it's uh, not in a spiritual way. Actually, God isn't actually ever mentioned in the book of Ruth. It, it's funny, because of all the actors in the book of Ruth, God is not one of them. Um, he never does anything, but his law is there. And actually, funnily enough, it's the only book in the Bible where the Levitical laws are actually applied. <laughs> funnily enough, you know, all the sort of the gleaning around the margins and all that sort of stuff. You know, all of that is, it, and, and marrying your brother's, all that idea about you marry your brother's wife. Your kinship redeemer and all, kinsman redeemer and all those, all those different particular laws that you find in Leviticus, they're actually applied in Ruth and shown to be kind and shown to be functional, and shown to be the way to a healthy society. Do you see what I mean? But it's not done in a super spiritual way, it's done in a very practical way. And I think sometimes we spiritualize our faith, and even our conflicts, don't we? we spiritualize them so we leave them up there where we don't really have to deal with them. And actually the mucky business of doing the dishes together and listening to me sing When You Wish Upon a Star is, is not treated with the same kindness you know is that we we save or I, I lived in in um india for a long time and there was this one fellow i wrote a funny blog about living in india and he said about driving in india he'd said he said save kindness and grace for other areas of your life is what he would say about driving in india basically it's survival of the fittest so go for it you know and he had a point but you know i like this whole idea that we save kindness and grace for other other places in our life and I find, especially with people who, these sorts of divisions we're talking about, and we all know, know of them in, in our different contexts, um, it's funny how we can be the kindest, most loving people, um, but actually crucify someone because they're leading the faithful astray. Do you, do you see what I mean? There's the things that people can do in the name of God, that good people can do in the name of God, when you spiritualize things, um, are horrific. You know, and we can lead ourselves very much astray. But I suppose in the book of Ruth, you have this context of, but do these things, care for the stranger, care for the poor, uh, care for the widow, you know, be kind. I also remember the order of the mustard seed, and one of the vows we take is uh, be kind to all people. It's, it's lo love God and be kind to everyone. It's, and it's a reframing of love people, basically. It's the, it's the golden rule, you know, treat others as you do yourself. But we reframe it as kindness. It's funny because kindness is a very practical word, whereas love is like, I love you, Boston. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's woof, it's gone. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> I love you, Greenbelt. I love, no worries, summer madness. I love you, summer madness. Do you know what I mean? H and how exactly do you love me right now? You know, 
Um, but kindness is a difficult thing. Is it? It's a different thing because we all recognize that immediately and we all know what it takes to be kind. So, so there, the book of Ruth, um, really very practical and, and simple and, and uh, humble. But that's, my, my, that's all that came to mind right there. Good. Thanks, Dave. Um, so are there any kind of comments, questions um, related to what I've said or other thoughts? Com anything? Converted? Thank you. What stuck out about what heresy did Johnny preach today? <laughs> Bring us back, guys. We affiliate So how have we seen? So we're talking about national identity and how national identity often gets connected to religious belief and or political belief. And the church it can be seen. And how have we seen in the church reconciliation, say, between British, Irish, Protestant, Catholic kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a few stories in this room, you know. Um, um, but I, I think one of the key things is, um, you know, when I moved, I was nine years old when I moved here. Um, I went to Church of Ireland churches for most of my childhood till I was um, about 17. I started going to CFC in Strandtown, East Belfast. And but for that kind of formative first 10 years in Church of Ireland churches, um, they, were, they were good churches, very good people. Um, but, and I went to school, went to grammar school, Coronet, Sullivan Upper, went to pr pr primary school, Irish Society, and Pertain. I traveled a lot. <laughs> um, in all of those spaces, I was surrounded by people who would have seen themselves as British. You know, they would have... Probably almost everyone that I hung out with would have watched the Queen's speech on Christmas Day, <laughs> you know, and they would have seen not thought nothing of it and would have thought to not watch the Queen's speech must be a weird thing. You must be weird to not watch. My mom is still like that. She's a New Zealander. I hope she's not listening to this. <laughs> she goes, it's a Queen's speech, Johnny. Come on, get the kids. Oh, it's like, fine. Sorry. I, I'm not going to go down that path. But, you know, but I was surrounded by Britishness, you know, and, and it's not that I was surrounded by a bunch of bigots who hated Catholics. They, in fact, most, probably many of the people I, I met would have liked the Catholic <laughs> if they met one, but they wouldn't have met many, you know? And they wouldn't have met many in a religious context. Where would you? Like, where would you? In 1984, I mean, there were some places, Community of the King, there were these kind of intentional communities that were kind of bringing people together. Russ Trevor, Christian Renewal Center, Corrie I should mention Corrymeela, the organization I work for. <laughs> you know, there were these spaces where Catholics and Protestants were meeting, but they were rare, you know? Uh, what do you call the Presbyterian minister Armstrong? David Armstrong, was it? He took his congregation across the road to a Catholic church. I mean, that, those were rare kind of things. Ken Yule, Fitzroy. Um, and so it's not so much that we hate, hate it. We were a bunch of hating, Catholic-hating Protestants. We were just living in our completely separate world. And to this day, 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, there's a lot of people at Summer Madness who, who probably don't really have any Catholic friends. And it's not because they're bad people who hate Catholic. They just don't know them. They just don't ever meet them. And they'll go to church every Sunday for the, if they go to church every Sunday for the rest of their life, they may not meet Catholics because the most divided time of the week is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Mm, we go to our different places. So, 
So what does reconciliation look like into church spaces where we, by almost by definition, we're separate? Well, it has to then somehow spill out of the church building because the only people going in that church building are the people who belong to your church. You know, the church, you have to have a church without walls. You have to have a church that exists for the people out there. It has to be not attracting people in, attractional. It's got to be incarnational. And not incarnational as we are the powerful do-gooders who know everything and we're going to go and put ourselves in a little poor community and we're going to be the altruistic better people. But it's like coming alongside the marginalized, the most marginalized in your society, or the most othered, or the people who are most separate from you. So if Jesus, if we want to take Jesus seriously, and he says the greatest commandment is to love Lord your God with all your heart, and the second commandment is just like the first one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Well, I'll tell you a story about a good Samaritan. Who are the Samaritans? The greatest enemy of the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. So the second commandment is just like the first commandment. Love, essentially, as he said in Matthew 5, love your enemy. That's, that's, it. that's right there. That's, that's essentially, if we're not doing that, we're probably not following Jesus. You know, at the end of the day, we might sing all the latest songs and we might know all the, like, the stuff. But if we're not loving our enemy, then we're not really doing it. So, it's all very roundabout to your question. But if we don't know our enemy, we'd ever meet them, then we, we're probably not loving them, you know? So we've got to go. We've got to go and meet them <coughs> is the first thing, you know. Um, and I think organizations like Youth Initiatives, and you used to work with Youth Initiatives and some people, I mean, that's a brilliant example of a, of a youth work project that started in West Belfast with Catholics, then doing stuff in East Belfast and, you know, things like crossings and bringing young people together outside of a church. That's all outside of church context. That's probably, it's not that there's not a space for church, but maybe we need to, wouldn't it be lovely that church was seen as, as people, not as a church building, you know? Because at the end of the day, maybe that's what this century, if, if this exodus from the pews is going to continue, maybe it will help to show us that church is not in that building after all, you know? Um, that church is as two or three gather in my name, this gathered, you know, ecclesia, this people not and not to slag off buildings and churches and it's very easy to do that and especially nowadays um but but maybe that's part of it somehow we've got to find ways that you know the church leaves the building and um i don't know if that answered your question Amen. any other comments or questions disagreements Amaze my wife over there doesn't have a disagreement with me, you know, my beloved. Ah, do you have any comments, Jen? You're usually very good with your. Yeah. All right, what time is it? We come up to our quarter two, but it is right on. We started a bit late. I've got any other comments, questions? Okay, maybe I'll just finish for the sake of, um, like I said, the, the masses listing. Um, uh, so I work for Carmila. You can find about us carmila.org. Um, if you if you work for um, an organization that has works with young people, with people, churches, whatever, um, you can think about using our center in Ballycastle. It's Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation center, and is a beautiful place. And many people in Ireland, many many people, have come to Carmila at some place. But the more I go around, the more I find. People kind of go, is Carmilla still going? All right, what do you do? You know, so it's still there. There's still a beautiful center. 
I work in Belfast and I do a public theology program. Um, also, myself and a few others, including Dave Hines, who was just speaking there, we run an event on the second Tuesday of every month, normally, um, uh, called Borderlands in South Belfast. So we, um, not in July, um, but uh, in August we'll be back again. Um, and so Borderlands is is a kind of a space outside. It's in a pub in the Pavilion Bar, usually, unless we outgrow it, but. Uh, the Pavilion Bar on the Ormo Road, uh, Tuesday night, 7.30. Music, reflections, talks, interviews, art, you know, whatever. Um, trying to find ways to bring people together in spaces uh, where people feel safe and welcomed um, to be able to dialogue and discuss. Um, so that's one of the things that we do. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's very good. I mean, John John Key is very good with that kind of stuff. You know, I think historically has uh, been very quick to uh, enable summer madness to, yeah, to be yeah. So that was good. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks everyone for coming, and um, let's end it like that. I'll see you soon. I'm doing another seminar tomorrow, which is going to be on. Uh, kind of border poles there you go so it'll be a bit more to kind of building it's a uh, and kind of identity in ireland and where we're going to and what that could mean for us as christians so thank you